Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. I'm Scott Jones, as always your host, and we come to you every Friday with a, among other things, a summary, overview, conversation of our weekly roundup post, Another Week Ends, which is kind of a Christian cosmopolitan grace-infused guide to what we think is worth paying attention to out there in the interwebs. In a few moments, I'll be talking about Another Week Ends with Mockingbird's founder, David Zoll, but first... I'll be speaking with Stephanie Phillips, who is a first-time, long-time, first-time on the show, but a long-time contributor to Mockingbird's website. We had a really interesting conversation about how she's found the grace to juggle the roles of career woman, mother, wife, and most importantly, child of God. Plato said that wonder is the feeling of a philosopher, and the philosophy begins in wonder. I think not only that, but it, wonder somehow is a key element in a life well lived. Wonder not just at the true, the good, and the beautiful, but at the strange, the peculiar, maybe even the irritating or anxiety provoking realities that are before us. Whether you're figuring out what you think about a piece of art, are trying to figure out the role of a spiritual community in the world, or figuring out how to juggle a bunch of different roles you're assigned, or how to live with the things in your own story, which, if you're honest, are less than lovely, at least in your own eyes. A sense of wonder somehow seems to lighten the load wherever and whenever you find it. And it's always a gift of grace. And now on to a wonderful conversation I had with Stephanie Phillips. Welcome to the Mockingcast for the first time. Stephanie Phillips, who thought she could dance, or at least that's the title of her most recent Mockingbird post and contribution. So when did you think you could dance? Middle school? Probably... The first three decades of my life, pretty much. Um, what was your favorite dance step? Um, let's see. Dancing for people and God's approval. Do you know that one? I don't. I know the cabbage patch. <laughs> it looks sort of like that. <laughs> <laughs> and less coordinated. <laughs> so when you say you think you can dance, you're thinking the cowboy metaphor. Like the kind of, so you think you can dance. Yeah, I mean... It was sort of what I wrote, like tap dancing for change. You know, when I mm. already had the keys to the kingdom, I just felt like I was, I realized, you know, after about 30 years that I was just performing all the time and trying to be who I thought people wanted me to be rather than being the mess that I was and living in the forgiveness that came from that. So you talk about in the post picking up when you're a couple of months into your first pregnancy. I don't know how she does it. Yeah. So do you think like this is like the, so you think you can dance woman pressure cooker handbook to making things worse or? Yeah, I think so. I mean, the book was a lot better than the movie as is often the case. Um, and it's been so long since I read it and my life has changed so much since I read it. So it's hard to say, but 
there was a lot more honesty in the book. Um, the film had this sheen to it, you know, like she's a mess, but yet she always looks great. You know, we're supposed to believe that this character is having such a hard time, but she's, her hair still looks great at the end of every day, you know? So I think definitely, I think we are, um, you know, we're called on to perform a lot of roles and that's not necessarily, I, for me, it just, it was too much. I was, I was pretending too much. Do you think like, so you talk in this post about how basically you, you went on this career track, your career is pediatric dentistry, right? Right. Which full disclosure, one of my best friends is a dentist and it's like, I think it's the (laughs) coolest thing in the world, dentistry. I love it. But uh, like, I'm the only, I'm one of the only people that like loves going to the dentist office. Um, sometimes You're I just, like a dental groupie. <laughs> oh, I'm, to, I'm a total dental groupie. It's, I, it's yeah. like my favorite thing. But, you know, you talk about being on this kind of fast track career path and then making the choice to be a stay at home mom and it, kind of the angsty nature of that decision. Like what what was the hardest thing about it? For me, I think those deep seated um longings for approval and people pleasing played into the difficulty of making the decision. I felt like I was letting people down, but I think that all goes back to the fact that I was performing in the first place. Like I wanted people to see me in a certain way. I wanted them to see me as someone who was doing it all. And I felt really gratified when people would make comments like, how do you do this and that? And um, I, I just feel like that came from a sense of, um, both insecurity and pride. Like I wanted to be a certain kind of person that people would be impressed by. And all of that was in a place where I wasn't letting grace reach me and let me rest. Do you think, and and that's a catch 22, right? It's rock and the hard place thing. So it's like staying in the, in the fast track career thing. Well, am I letting down my kids, my family, you know, going the stay at home mom, am I letting down, you know, my colleagues, my family yeah. that would see, you know, wanted me to go to school and all this. I mean, it's, it's almost this, um, it, it's almost so many dance steps at once. It seems like. Right. Yeah. I, and to be honest, a big part of it for me was that I don't subscribe to the idea that a woman should always be at home for the first few years of her child's life. I see women who, who do both career and mothering and they do both well. And I think that's amazing. I, I think of my sister in particular as someone who does that. And so I don't, I don't want to be, by making this decision, I guess one concern was that I was going to be lumped in with a group of um, hyper evangelical, you know, Proverbs 31 type people who think a woman's only place is in the home. And I realize that <laughs> that fear is sort of an extreme, but I do think it exists out there. And I I want people to understand that this is about grace. This isn't about, um, oh, I figured out what my proper place is. My proper place is at Jesus' feet. And this is what that looks like right now. And um, or it, really in his lap, because that's what I need to be doing is resting in the grace he gives. And that could be for another woman that could be fully enmeshed in her career. Um, that's the point is it can look different for each of us. And I had to understand what it looked like for me. So it's not a one size fits all thing. You could be um, making all the same choices you're making right now from a position 
not of receiving, but of attempted achieving. Oh my gosh. Yes. And I see, I also see women and I could see myself falling into this, which is why I have to remain vigilant and prayerful, but I see women who perform in the role of motherhood. They want to be, you know, the best mom on the block. They are, are, you know, engaged in competitive parenting, which is a sport um, that's very popular right now. And, you know, they, they want to be seen as, as that role. And, um, I think that that is, that's not the right place either because you're, that's gonna, that's gonna put pressure on your kids in a way that is not helpful for them either. So, yeah, I think either way you can be performing and you can be substituting your role for grace, whether it's your career or motherhood. I would love to produce the show Competitive Parenting. I All right, make a sandwich you. now. All right, nurture, empathy, let's go. Get yourself together. We're behind. There would be an endless list of people applying for that show because it is so very real. Tell tell the producer how much how how sensitive your mommy is right now. <laughs> exactly. So, do you think like why why don't you think men feel as caught in this trap? I mean, no, there is like an achievement trap that's different, but nobody. When a guy has kids, well, what are you going to do? Are you going right. to focus on your career? Right. Are you are you going to, you know, like it, people just, yeah, it, like it, it seems like we put women in, in this pressure cooker in, in bind that yeah, we don't do quite the same thing to men. Yeah. And I, I was talking to my husband about that because uh, Matt Lauer interviewed um, Mary Barra, the CEO of, I think of GM. And he asked her this question about, can you be a good CEO and a good mom? And everyone was in an uproar because it was like, why can't she ask you, can you be a good news anchor and a dad? So I asked my husband about that and he said, and he's not a complainer, but his response was because people don't care about the role of the dad as much. Um, and he, you know, he elaborated, but I think what he was saying was, the dad is almost in our culture sometimes seen as an accessory figure. And I think biology plays into that. I think expectations play into that. But no matter how far the, the women's movement has gone, there are certain things only a mom can do. And, and there are times when, when husbands and fathers are going to feel superfluous. And I don't know. I think that's such a huge discussion as far as gender roles and all that goes. But I think that the expectation on men just isn't as heavy um, because it's just assumed that they are going to be more of a supporting role. Yeah. Like you're probably going to have an emotionally distant father figure in your life. And, you know, but if, if at least he's, he's worth something and goes to work and things like that, he'll, you'll be fine. It's kind of, yeah. Yeah. The, these, these gender roles, you know, for all the, the advances we've made, I mean, there's, they're pretty entrenched, you know, and, even when we try not to see, you know, a woman having a certain role and a man having a certain role, biology dictates a lot of it. So we're never going to get away from it completely. Yeah. One of the things I think you said in conclusion, your post, which everybody it's on ember.com. And again, once again, it's called, uh, so I thought I could dance, but one of the things you conclude with, I think is great is that your identity isn't wrapped up in being a wife or a mother or a career woman, but, being a child. Yeah. And I think that like when Jesus says, you know, uh, unless you become like a child, there's something about, yeah, as a child, you, receptivity is it. I mean, you kind of dependent on your, and so I think maybe right. the freedom for men and women, I guess 
is what you're saying is in uh, a graced adult childhood. Right. Absolutely. It's like what Sarah Condon wrote about baby Christians earlier this week. And we're all innocent children. We're all innocent baby Christians because we are all traveling grace and we're learning the same lessons over and over and being forgiven over and over. And I am not an expert on parenting and I never will be, but that's okay because my children's salvation is held in bigger hands than mine. And if I would just believe that every day, it would be great. (laughs) And thanks so much. And let's just like full disclosure. I mean, you uh, agreed to do this interview you know, in the gym, like, you know, on the, you know, you're, you're somewhere in the gym right now. Right. So yeah. like yeah. you're, um, you're graciously, uh, juggling, if not dancing. Yeah. Juggling, throwing, um, you know, waiting on my kid to wake back up in the gym, childcare. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a mess, but you know, um, I'm, I'm slowly growing more comfortable with the mess slowly. <laughs> the chaos. Oh, yeah. Creative chaos. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks so much for being with us. And Thank you for having me. We look forward to having you back on the show. Yeah, I can't wait. Thanks a lot. On the floors of Tokyo, a town of London, towns of go-go. Oh, with the record selection and the mirror's reflection, I'm a dancing all with myself. Oh, when there's no one else inside, I'm in the crowd and lonely night. Well, I wait so long for my All right, back with us, the animating force of the zeitgeist of Mockingbird, David Zoll. Thank you, Scott. You're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to put that on my tombstone now. Well, you would either need a really small font or a really big tombstone. <laughs> yeah, I'm planning on like, you know, a whole mausoleum. Yeah, I would want like a thing you could like walk in and stuff. I mean, I think that's cool. I mean, I, I figure at some point I'll need to be, um, you know, uh, uh, someone will need to desecrate my grave for some reason, maybe for like a magic potion or something. And we want to, we want to make it easy for them. You know what's interesting? John Calvin was buried in an anonymous grave, right? So that he, you know, he didn't want people to revere his grave. Now, is that humble or proud? Because or arrogant? Because it's humble. I don't want to be. But then you're actually thinking that you're that big of a deal that people are going to revere your grave. Hmm. Well, I mean, in his case, it was accurate. <laughs> it was. I don't even know if it was. People would have gone to his grave. I would have gone. I would have been interested in seeing John Calvin's grave. Um, though, I mean, God, I guess I respect the fact that he, he decided to go with a, uh, yeah, who, who knows? I, I know that I've seen a lot of ridiculous graves in my life and, um, I, uh, I, I uh, I, I don't know what I, I haven't even given any thought. Maybe that's because most of us don't want to think about death at all. But anyway, this is a funny in, uh, beginning to our conversation. Exactly. Exactly. It's, it's this upbeat death tombstones so before we get started here's my thought right so one of the iowa caucus was was determined by apparently there was like six things that were determined between sanders and clinton on a coin toss i think we should do oh, more yeah. people were really upset like you know i think we should do more stuff like that like the amish pick their bishops by like like there's three candidates right they get nominated 
or whatever that every mm-hmm. and then they draw straws. So what if we had like a slate of candidates, like four or five, and then we just had some ridiculous like sometimes some game of chance, some things like The Bachelor, like you have to take a voter out for a date and see if they're you know like and just have some sort of like so the country chooses four or five people and then we put them through like a ridiculous series of exercises. Well, it would certainly be entertaining. Uh, uh, I don't. I, I I saw that stuff about the coin toss. I I didn't know if it was serious or not. Um, yeah, and she won. But, uh, Clint won six six coin tosses. The odds of winning all six are one in sixty four. Uh, you know, you just make your own, draw your own conclusions. I guess. Yeah, I just think it's interesting. I, I, it's just fascinating. So yeah. what we got? <laughs> we got another week ending, which brings us to another week ends indeed and Here the first are. thing that that you reflected on that i thought was super interesting was this article not just because he's my namesake at least his surname a.o scott but it's called everybody's a critic and that's how it should be yeah it, look i think it, it, it's uh a.o scott the new movie reviewer for the new york times he's i think he's got a whole, whole book coming out about the nature of criticism and what it means in our context because yeah everyone is a critic you know you've got your yelp reviews you've got your your likes on facebook you've got your blog posts um what does it mean to be a critic everyone's a critic and uh it, 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 i think he's really trying to reclaim something uh positive and noble about the art of criticism which is you know gets a really hard um it, it gets a, a lot of uh harsh words about a, a lot of criticism about the uh, art of criticism, uh, you know, just watch Ratatouille or something. That, that's kind of how we view criticism and that Anton Ego mean looking for uh, d- to be, you know, people's parades and be, uh, you know, critical in, in, in a, not in a positive light, but in a judgmental spoil your fun kind of way. You know, I just want to say for the record, my wife, Lindy, is like – the best Yelp reviewer I know. I mean, she writes like her prose is elegant. <laughs> she's very fair. She's complimentary yet honest. I mean, her, like, I feel like if anybody out there who's listening to us that has a business or anything, if you give Lindy a free meal or something, she will review it. And I guarantee you it will be a, a, a very, very well thought out review. She's a good Yelp critic. Well, that's, that's a side note, but it's almost like a public servant. It is. It is. It is a public service. It really is. He says, yeah. you know, one of the things that I think he says in this piece that I, it's one of those things that like, I guess maybe I thought something like this, but never had it said so well. Like basically he says, you know, criticism is a form of argument. So I get paid to argue for my perception of a work or my aesthetic perspective. I, I thought that was a very honest way to frame criticism Like that, that, keeps the balance between the objectivity and the subjectivity right yeah what did he he says he goes on to say that you know um we 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 sort of know on some level that our opinions are subjective or what we respond to is very subjective but none of us um at the same time that that there's no such thing as like this is great and this isn't but actually none of us believe that we all believe that there's such a thing as really good art and really not very good art um, and how do we, how do we balance the subjective and the objective? He, uh, I like, I like it. it, it someone said, uh, in response to that article that, you know, criticism is really 
meant to be the final uh, verdict. It's meant to of on of something. It's supposed to be the opening uh, of a conversation or of a discussion, sort of the opening salvo on sort of like I'm gonna I'm gonna plunge in first and say what I think and what how I responded to something. And there's I, I see that. You know, I, I spent some time. I write about it in Mess of Help. I spent some time after college thinking pretty seriously about going into music criticism as a job. Uh, and, you know, before I realized that it didn't pay anything and that, you know, it was, uh, I, the real reason I walked away from it or I didn't get that interested in it. Um, and I had some friends, you know, who are writing for Pitchfork and writing for these, it looked like it, uh, some doors were opening <clears throat> is what I'm trying to say. And, um, but I, I actually did find inside myself that it was, um, opening up a, uh, a view of the world that was not charitable and in fact didn't contribute to my personal happiness, um, or contentment in any substantial way. It wasn't that I was uh, one, I left thinking like I, I want to turn off my critical faculties, but it was, it was really, um, the atmosphere that, um, a bunch of, you get a bunch of critics in a room and, I don't know. There's a cost to be paid for doing that kind of work. And it usually has to do with how you um, are able to enjoy or not enjoy things um, that you used to enjoy. And I wasn't really ready to pay that cost. And plus I found that the temperaments of the people that were involved in it, um, you know, not to be too critical, uh, but they were sort of lousy. <laughs> not to be too critical. The criticism <laughs> of the critic. Yeah. I think that, you know, one of the things that's – I really, again, liked the, the 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 opening salvo kind of move and the idea that there is this – that aesthetics isn't all subjective. Even if we can't quite demarcate the line between, you know, what's beautiful, what's not, what's excellent, what's not. But we know it's – I think one of the hardest things uh, in just human existence is things that – we know are true, but we can't philosophically substantiate. So like philosophy of language, right? Like some people argue that there's incommensurability. Well, nothing can really be translated. Well, but translation's possible. So, but we might just not have a theory philosophically of how it works, mm -hmm. but we just know it's possible. Uh, you know, or when people say, well, there's only Muslim ethics or feminist ethics or Christian ethics, but we all know we're talking about ethics. So there must be some kind of commonality that that so I think the same thing around the criticism is kind of the point he makes that uh, there is a subjective dimension to it, but we don't think it's futile or it doesn't drive us to nihilism. That real good criticism keeps us in the pursuit uh, with our subjectivity of the true, the good, and the beautiful, which I liked. Yeah. And I think A.O. Scott does that really well, frankly. He's one of the, he's a critic that's not, doesn't seem bitter at all. And, and I, I generally agree with his reviews, which is, you know, <laughs> the mark of a great critic, right? Absolutely. But, uh, yeah, I, 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 it's a good discussion and it's, a, it's a timely discussion. And I'll be interested to read the full book. Um, cause I was a little unclear as to what the article was ultimately trying to say outside of exonerating critics. Um, I think it's part of a larger, larger argument. Which brings us to another piece connected to the theme of beauty and the arts. This is by Andrew Pet Pettyprin. 
and it's in. Uh, yeah, I don't think I, I think you pronounce it differently than that. Pet Pettiprin. Yeah. Pettif- I think that's closer to it. Yeah, Pettiprin. Okay, his article is "Beauty Will Save the World," and this appears in Covenant. Yeah, it's 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 a, the blog for the Living Church magazine, which is an Episcopal church uh, um, publication. Kind of a, um, it's it's not it's 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 not a newsletter. It's it's above that. It's 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 an actual you know um, magazine, and they're. I actually have read the Living Church. Oh well, I, then you know. I like that. That's great. The, the gradations, though, it's not a newsletter. It's not, well, I'm not going to quite make it a magazine, but it is a periodical. It's like. I like that. I think they're 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 doing a great work, and I think that they're they've become more of a magazine, certainly in, in recent years. So, in this piece, you are actually referenced. I know, it's so flattering. He, uh, um, Andrew, uh, was sort of uses the um, he uses a, a really interesting speech from uh, Solzhenitsyn about beauty. Uh, Sort of riffing off Dostoevsky's idea that beauty will save the world uh, from the idiot, but he um, he was looking at my um, something I wrote about the Benedict Option, which I think we talked about before Christmas. Or I don't know if we'd started the podcast at that point, but the Benedict Option, which is this um, like smaller church, higher walls, and less of a permeable membrane between the church and the world. Like we got to kind of <laughs> right, like that's exactly it. You said it much better than I ever could. So like, if, so last night I was on a train. And um, I don't know why at 630 or whatever, 640, they had so few cars. But, like, I'm sitting there. It's standing room only. I luckily got a seat. And there's just, like, all these people. And it's so hot. And I'm thinking, this is, like, a Petri dish. And I'm getting all manner of diseases because it's so hot and we're so compressed. And it's sort of – I think that's kind of the view of some of those folks that, like, the world is, like, this Petri dish of infectious cultural influences. And and – because we lack the ability to form ourselves well, like our kind of spiritual immune systems aren't up to being in that close quarters all the time with, with that many kind of, you know, non-Christian or worldly influences until we sort of suck it in and it malforms us or something. Yeah. It's a sort of an outside in, uh, understanding. Uh, It's, it, 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 it's premised on a higher ecclesiology than I personally hold to. Uh, but I think it's responding to something real as I tried to put in that article. And, um, I remember we got some, I got some, I got some pushback. People saying that maybe Christians are crying wolf. They're, they're, they're playing the victim card, which is another thing we're kind of interested in right now. Um, and that, uh, real persecution is what's happening in the Middle East, not, um, you know, Iraqi Christians, not, not American, uh, you know, middle class. <clears throat> evangelicals so this is premature you can't say merry christmas here though yeah i mean that kind of thing and i get it you know there is there is really that tendency in american christianity that's sort of amplified by the internet and everyone crying woe is me the culture of victimhood and all that but that said i do think that dreyer uh, he's um uh I don't agree with the contours of it and I take issues with a lot of the, what's going on here, but there is, you know, it's undeniable that the, um, prevailing culture is often antagonistic to, uh, the Christian faith and not just the, 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 the moral, um, you know, uh, the ethical moral part of the, of our faith, which to me is very penultimate, but, but ultimately to the fact that there's a God, that there's anyone, uh, anything larger than us. I, I think that, they're not they're not insane to be saying that there's a um, 
there are ways in which, uh, you, you feel not, um, the, the, the culture is not sympathetic to religious people in the way that maybe it once was. Um, so I think they're responding to something real. What, uh, Andrew is saying, um, is, he, uh, I make the argument that there is a lot of, you know, things in the culture to be shared and borrowed from. And that, that's something we do in Mockingbird all the time as we point out, you know, the life of Axel Rose or, um, you know, whatever. I think CJ was writing about American Horror Story yesterday. Um, may, I, may I quote him quoting you? <laughs> yeah. What does he say? Well, he's, he's talking about, he says a lot of, I encourage everybody to read the article because it's, it's a nice short piece, but he says a ton of, uh, complimentary things about you. And then he says this article, which you did write about the Benedict option, but Zoll's article also gives me pause, especially as I contemplate beauty as the vehicle for truth and goodness. He meaning Zoll, meaning you notes. I simply like elements in the culture too much. And I don't think it makes me an assimilationist. Our connective tissue is rampant as this site hopefully demonstrates. There's much to be gleaned from unexpected sources. And then he says, I'm inclined to say amen, except that as I step back and consider the church's heritage and vocation. Uh, and in this way, I realize my ecclesiology is much, much higher than Zal's. And he says that the whole universe is sacramental, and yet the church has been given the guaranteed means of grace, and that we need to be intentional about subcreating with God for the life of the world. Subcreating, I, I assume, beautiful aesthetic objects that are distinctly and uniquely Christian. So there you go. Yeah, I think it's... Um I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with much of that. Although, you know, um, certainly when he says he's got a higher ecclesiology, he's right. And I, I think it's nice that he recognizes that, that we're coming from slightly different places there where that, um, the, my anthropology is, is, is what informs my ecclesiology in that respect. And that I just think that there's not that much of a difference between Christians and non-Christians. So I, I don't see there much of a difference between the church and what's outside the church. Um, and maybe that's naive or it's cynical, but, uh, what, what he's ultimately saying is that the, the church, we, we need to go beyond just saying, Hey, there are elements of the gospel in this or that. And, uh, Christians should be, uh, charged and excited about and, you know, embrace the privilege of creating, um, works of beauty that reflect goodness and truth in a more explicitly Christian way. And I, I mean, that, amen to that. There's, that would be great. But in the meantime, when that doesn't seem to be possible or the greater works of beauty are coming out of people that are, you know, unconvinced on matters of goodness and truth. Um, well, I, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm willing to spend my time there because it's, uh, it's not that there, there's some great Christian work being made today too, but it's also, um, I, yeah, again, I just don't see that, that clear of a divide. Um, but I, but I, but I, uh, applaud what he's, what he's ultimately saying. I agree with you. I think that, I mean, there, I think there are a couple of different ways to look at the world as a Christian. One, it has a long tradition is that there are two kinds of people, right? Augustine city of God, you know, there's sheep, there's goats, you know, Cain and Abel, uh, the elect and the reprobate, uh, and, and that sort of shapes a certain view of culture, right? In the world. And something like Karl Barth wanted to say, no, there's only one elect and one reprobate, Jesus Christ. And everyone is elect in him. Now, maybe some people eternally resist their election, but they do it as somebody that's not an outsider, but is rejecting the welcome, you know, to be an insider. 
And so I think that kind of view makes for a little more of a permeable membrane between church and world. And I think that the difference between primarily between the church and the world is a noetic one. I mean, it's about knowledge. It's about knowing uh, that your Redeemer lives (laughs) as opposed to um, being a different, I I agree, as opposed to being a different sort of human or, or creature altogether. Well, you're touching on exactly what I tried to say delicately, but I put it. I, I, a lot of sweat into this article yesterday about victimhood culture. Um, and the, the reason that victimhood culture is, is, is difficult to get my head around as a Christian is that it separates people into insiders and outsiders, uh, victims and non-victims. Um, when, and, and to take issue with it, you sort of, it sounds like you're being callous about those who are victims, those who are outsiders. But the truth of the, matter is that we're all uh, outsiders and we're all victims. Not That doesn't mean we should be insensitive to real acts of injustice or uh, really even repentant of the ways in which we've been complicit in them. But I think that we, um, when, when you start to see the Christians, the world, the church's job is, as uh, you know, we're these insiders go, going out to, to sort of help the outsiders. I think that that's dangerous. It's, it's paternalistic, but it's also, um, not really true. Uh, we're, we're outsiders ourselves. We, you know, we're, the, the, the knowledge is the knowledge of Christ that, that we're pointing to our savior who is everyone else's savior as well. So it's not, um, uh, th- that's the problem I have that the, the cult, what the, what the culture has done though, it's made, uh, victimhood. It's, it's, it's making it its own form of righteousness. So you can't, um, it, we're, we're it, it's God actually loves these people because they've been made righteous by their, by nature of their uh, victimhood, which is just not the way the Bible, the, the, God loves outsiders. He loves people who've been hurt. Uh, but it's because they don't have their righteousness have been sullied and they're sinners and they're, uh, it's 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 a I guess a delicate matter to talk about, but I, I find it ultimately is the more pastoral one and the more inclusive one in the sense that we're all together. We're we're all um, in need of uh, being loved as as outsiders. You know, that's I, I guess that's a long way from what Father Andrew was um, talking about specifically in his article, but I do I do think it. it it uh, trickles down into a lot of the ways in which you view the world. And um, one of the things I'm proudest about with Mockingbird or the I'm proudest when people tell me is that we have some, there's some kind of latitude in the way that we've, in the, our understanding of the gospel that allows us to, um, to draw connections rather than just disconnections uh, to that is exciting. And uh, you know, it doesn't, create more walls. It, it brings them down, but not in a flaky way, in a way that sort of is based on human uh, suffering and sin. Um, we, we, yeah. And I think about passages like in Isaiah 60, right? When it's describing the new Jerusalem and it's like the ships of Tarshish are coming in, you know, these, these pagan, you know, Israel is not a seafaring people. It's very interesting that, that, that the best things of cultural achievement outside the camp are brought into the new Jerusalem. Interesting. So maybe like, you know, that says something for rock and roll and all sorts of other um, cultural artifacts from our time. Can we conclude with just one short thing, a tribute piece to 
David Foster Wallace in the New York Times. It's the anniversary of Infigestus here. Um, his his great opus, um, a fictional um, tome that is so it's been so um, it's important in my life. I there's a book I read a couple of years ago, and I was rereading it recently um, called All Things Shining, which is about mm-hmm. the quest for the sacred in a secular age, written by two philosophers. One who's the chair at Harvard, Sean Kelly. The other's guy, Herbert Dreyfus, but they talk, they have a whole chapter on Wallace and kind of life in light of the death of God and what aesthetics look like and meaning. And they talk about an interview where he says, where Wallace says, they ask him like, what's his life like, his daily life? Well, I write for an hour and then for eight hours a day, I think about and stress about why I'm not writing. Um, (laughs) And they say this, they compare Wallace to um, Luther and the kind of intense, almost stressful quest for meaning that he's undertaking all the time. Wallace, he said, the battle that Luther fought to eradicate sin in his soul mirrors the crusade against encroaching boredom, anger, frustration, and distraction that seems to have directed all of Wallace's life. One imagines Wallace, the writer, like the young Luther, noticing himself not attending to his writing, rebuking himself for his weakness, returning to his task with renewed vigor and purpose, becoming momentarily satisfied with his newfound focus, rebuking himself for his momentary satisfaction, becoming disgusted with himself for not being stronger, and finally giving up in despair. The eight hours a day Wallace worried about not writing were like the eight hours a day Luther worried about not being pure. The harder each tried to attain his purpose, the more distant and unachievable seemed the goal. Hmm. Wow. There you have it. That that's that's incredible. And and I don't think I don't think that's too much conjecture there. That that seems to be consistent with how he talked about his his own writing. Um but you know, you don't want to romanticize it too much because a lot of people feel that way I think about their own creative endeavors. Um he just had this uh brain and uh ear. It's really his ear as much as his brain that was just so um finely tuned. Yeah, well, I wonder about it's kind of linked. It's maybe the thread between all the things we're talking about, but I, I wonder how much. Uh, maybe it's just a law of grace thing. Like true aesthetic accomplishment uh, often probably feels like you're entranced. You know, like you're like you're a vessel. Like there's a spontaneity and a freedom. Uh, at least maybe that's best. But, and then in light of that, like trying to recreate it, maybe that's where the sting of the law comes when you're, when rather than receive the capacity to create and midwife something beautiful into the world, you attempt to achieve it. And maybe that sometimes get crushed under the weight of that expectation. I was just reading in a review of a album the other day and they just, whenever someone says something feels forced, that's such a put down, you know, (laughs) It's never you. Uh, you can when you can tell someone is trying to um, push something through that they're not quite convinced of, or they're not feeling. It doesn't mean that other stuff isn't doesn't. There's not an enormous amount of work and force behind things that don't feel forced. But um, isn't that interesting? That uh, uh, that that and that that means that they're got their dukes up with the law and they're really trying to battle it out in a way that you can, you can hear in the end product. And sometimes I think that that those are interesting uh, products, but they're, they tend not to be the ones that last that long. Well, I hope that this version 
edition of Another Weekend is one that lasts for a little bit of time, at least long enough for people to read it this weekend. Yeah. Well, that's uh, always the hope, I guess, right? I, I, um, I hope you have a good weekend, Scott. And I, I do want to say, I'll, just before, I, I was really um, touched that um, by the engagement that that article had with something I'd written. You know, it's it's that's a real privilege and honor. And I hope, you know, as I'm, I'm still just really thinking it through. I don't, I don't want to come across as unappreciative or dismissive. I really, it gave me a lot to think about. Yeah, it was a great piece. All right, man. Thanks and farewell. Thanks again for tuning in to the Mockingcast. Once again, we come to you every Friday. And if you like what you heard, please drop by iTunes and give us a rating and a review. And we will see you next week. And as usual, you can find all the content we reference on our website, mbird.com. Have a great weekend.